You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girl down. You already know. White male culture is expected to be everybody's taste palette because of the way America is. You know, they use blue liquid to symbolize our blood in 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 commercials. And I think honestly, the new sex, drugs, and rock and roll is like, I'm vegan, I get up early, I meditate. I almost had to check my own stereotyping. Yo, my friend Heather has a possum. She found a possum. They cleaned it up, and now it sleeps on the bed with her, her dog, and her cat. Hello. 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 And welcome to Pop-Tarts. Me, 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 me. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors at Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today we have such a special guest. She is a musical inspiration to me, and I'm very excited to speak with her. Kiran Gandhi, better known by her stage name Madam Gandhi, got her start in music performing as the drummer for MIA and Thievery Corporation and got her bachelor's in mathematics and gender studies from Georgetown and an MBA from Harvard before deciding to become a full-time rock star in 2016 with her EP Voices. Uh, Since then, she's released the short-form 2019 album Visions, which was accompanied by a series of eye-poppingly amazing music videos produced by women and gender non-conforming artists, and she's currently working on her third album, Vibrations. But during quarantine, she took on a special new project. She launched a contest to see who could create the best remix of her 2019 song, Young Indian, and she personally listened to over 500 submissions from producers around the world before choosing her fave five, done in styles ranging from Afrobeat to reggaeton to bangra to salsa, to appear all together on a remix album called Young Indian Reimagined, which just came out in October. It is such a cool project, and I cannot wait to talk to her more about it. Welcome, Madam Gandhi, to the show. Yay! You're Thank here. Thank you so much for such a warm intro. I really appreciate it. Well, I would like to start with your origin story. How did you transform yourself from Kiran Gandhi, cool girl from New York, into Madam Gandhi, the rock star who we all know and love today? Tell us how it, how it all happened. That's funny. Um, You know, growing up in New York City, I would enjoy going to concerts and I enjoy going to seeing live music. And, you know, even if I was young, I would find um, myself enjoying like seeing the newest acts that are coming through the city. And in my class and in my school, I remember being the kid who was like making mixed CDs for people in the, in the Apple store in fifth Avenue, they had that open 24 hours. And I used to spend time after school or like kind of late night going and seeing what songs were preloaded onto the iPods, you know, what, what, what different kind of music they were promoting just so I could be kind of hip to what was out. And, you know, I was DJing, I was playing the drums. I've always felt like the musician, you know, I've always felt like the creative. I've always felt like the person who enjoys, um, expressing herself. So I feel, you know, the only reason why I even had an artist name to begin with was because that was my Instagram handle for a long time before I even decided I was going to make my own music, you know? So I, I feel, I feel like I've actually always been the same person 
And I think maybe it was only a matter of time before I felt brave and confident to do it in an official capacity. I want to tell you that I love, love, love that you're a drummer. I always wanted to be a drummer. As a kid, I that's the, the one and only instrument that I ever wanted to play. I was discouraged from trying it as a kid. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I attended Willie Mae Ladies Rock Camp in Brooklyn. And I learned to drum for the first time. It was there that I met three other women and we formed a punk band and we stayed together and we gigged and we played for three years. And um, I would love to hear about how you started playing drums and what your experience has been like being a woman playing an instrument that men more often play. Because I know I got a lot of weird static from like sound booth dudes and stuff on my brief journey playing the drums. And I would love to hear about how you got started and how you um, weathered the weird sexism that sometimes comes in the direction of women playing drums. Yeah, definitely. I mean, of course, that's very relatable. And I'm I'm happy you did the Willie Mae Rock Camp because the women's rock camp and the girls rock camps uh, around the country and hopefully around the world are are just so special and and so special to show the power of women and femmes and gender nonconforming people coming together to to play music. Um, I think also there's something to be said about testosterone and kind of the masculine energy uh, being more comfortable with taking up space. And oftentimes that does come at our expense um, as folks who are more on the feminine side. And so I think, to be honest, that's the answer to the question right there. In my in my drum playing for the first like five, 10 years of playing, I always felt pretty quieted uh, by the, the male bands that I was in, even though I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the challenge of it. I always felt I got better, um, because my, my male counterparts always pushed me to be better. I never did feel good enough. And I never really felt like I was, I felt, I didn't really know if I felt connected to the other, uh, boys in the band because they kind of have a different, like white male sense of humor that I never really (laughs) connected with, you know, or like white male (laughs) references to music that I didn't really idolize the same way they idolized. White male culture is expected to be everybody's taste palette because of the way America is. Like when we go to the movies, they're telling white male stories with that kind of frat boy humor. And it's supposed to appeal. It's supposed to be thought of as something that's appealing to all audiences. But that's like the history of America. It's just sort of like designed according to like this white male palette of of heroism, of music, of, of sex, of rock and roll, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, I didn't connect with it. So it was really fun to kind of switch my energy. And when I came to LA, really start playing with other women and and then eventually go on to play for MIA and, and start my own project. Well, I'm so glad that you brought that up. Um, before you started releasing music as Madame Gandhi, you drummed and you toured with MIA and Thievery Corporation. I was curious what touring with these huge bands was like for you and how did it inform the choices that you made once you were the boss and you started fronting your own band? I think for anybody who's listening, that's the most important thing. You know, I think it's really about when you're in a situation where somebody else gets to be the leader and you're there to serve a support role, really taking note beyond just your own responsibilities, really taking note of the larger picture. I watched how coordinated so many of the shows were from the outfits to the lighting, to the timing, to the set list, uh, to, to, to Maya's outfit compared to what the rest of the band was wearing. You know, all these kinds of um, really thoughtful details uh, were, were 
were the brainchild of the artist. And I loved seeing someone who was so intentional about all aspects of the show. And I definitely incorporated that into my practice. There was also things that I saw that were very dysfunctional. And of course, at a bigger level, it's harder to be fully functional than when you're at a smaller level like my project. But at the same time, I knew I was like, even in my tiny you know, project, when we're playing 50-person venues, 100-person venues, I want to run a tour that's very functional. I want the musicians I play with to know that no one's having a drink before we go on the stage and that if you want to party or have a drink or have a smoke or whatever – you can do so as long as like the last piece of gear has been loaded into the van, you know, then mm-hmm. everyone, never, mm-hmm. everyone's off duty. So things like that. Um, I knew how I felt being on the other side of things when they were badly managed. And so I also made it a point to kind of avoid those situations as much as, po- as, much as possible uh, in, in my own touring experience. Also during that time, while you were touring and playing with other bands, I feel like I first uh, found out who you were when you went viral in 2015 because you ran the London Marathon while free bleeding to raise awareness about global menstruation issues and stigma. I I just remember thinking like, what a fucking badass. Oh my God. Tell me about the feedback that you got for that before, during, and after because I was just so impressed um, with that as like a completely, you know, sort of like wordless gesture of of activism and making the personal political. Yes. Thank you for asking. I feel very, um, I, I felt very empowered by that choice. I felt very liberated. I felt like this is so me. Like I would be like, yo, I don't want to deal with getting a tampon right now. That doesn't feel comfortable. I don't know what people do in this situation. I would genuinely rather just free bleed than have to use a product that I don't think is appropriate for the needs of the moment. And then the more I ran, the more I just had this really beautiful awakening uh, moment connecting to my own body that so often I have uh, lived in shame or fear with regards to my own period, uh, you know, not talking about it so much or uh, believing this notion that on day one or day two of our cycle, we're kind of like fully out of commission or we're moody or whatever, and which I am all of those things. But then to cross the finish line on, on day one of my cycle, when I'd never run a marathon before, I was like, wow, women are amazing. People who bleed are amazing. Every day all around the world, we are doing incredible things on our cycle. And not only are we not allowed to talk about it, we're actually supposed to hide it away and pretend it doesn't exist. Like what is going on here? This is a total disaster. And to me, it was just so obvious and clear. And so I wrote about it, you know, I wrote about it and I think people appreciated the fact that it was a marathon, because that's such an elite act. Like there's no denying that if you've run 26 miles, you've done something that is remarkable, you know, and not, not to say yeah. people don't do it all, all, all the time, but, but it's something that is a challenge. It's something that is difficult, no matter who you are, no matter what culture you come from. And so there was this kind of global relatability to it. And then I think periods really were just on this, on this like moment waiting to explode, waiting to be talked about. Hillary Clinton was running for the presidency that year. You know, she, uh, was up against Donald Trump, who was using periods as an insult in in the news media. And then women were tweeting back, you know, periods are not an insult, uh, you know, it kind of to aid Megyn Kelly in, in that moment. So so when this story went viral, it just kind of was like this visual thing, too, because I was sh- there's like photos of me running and bleeding. 
that people really were not used to seeing. As many of you know, you know, they use blue liquid to symbolize our blood in, <laughs> in, in commercials. And, and, and really, it was just the time was ripe. So I feel grateful that my story reached so many people. It's funny because I was just trying to show up for myself that day and, and for my body. But I did write about it. And, and since then, it's been an amazing journey to, to continue that work of destigmatizing menstruation. I just saw recently for the it. first time a, a maxi pack commercial where they used red liquid instead of blue. Awesome. And I was like, Huge. we've come a long way, baby. It's true. <laughs> we've come true. a long way. It's really true. <laughs> As I said in the intro, your new remix collection, Young Indian Reimagined, is made up of your favorite five remixes of that song from over 500 submissions that you received from around the world during COVID. Why, out of all of your songs, did you choose Young Indian for this contest? And what was it like listening to 500 different versions of your song? I'm the young, I'm the young Indian. That's so awesome. Well, I I loved in the quarantine getting getting to be able to connect with other producers and really listen to other people's work. And I had discovered the Metapop community because I love using native instruments, um, plugins and software and hardware to produce many of the beats that you hear on my record. And so I loved the idea of holding a remix competition and meeting new producers and really listening to their sound. And when I realized how positive the community was like how mutually supportive it is. And it's not like a competitive bro male environment. I almost had to check my own stereotyping of that mm. community and actually be like, wow. <laughs> yeah. And actually be like, wow, this is so like mutually positive. I love how, even though it is very male leaning, the men are very supportive to one another and to the women. Um, and so I gave a lot of that love back. I went through and I listened to every person's remix and I left comments and feedback. And I think folks appreciated that because even when they didn't win, they knew that it was my ears listening and hand picking and it wasn't just arbitrary. I love that you left feedback. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, how did you pick a winner? I feel like I wouldn't, I, I would just be so like, jazzed about hearing 500 different versions of my song from around the world like I would be too overwhelmed to choose like did you have criteria yeah of course I think though I'm such an intuitive person that I just have an intuition and then I like retroactively justify the reason with data do you know what I mean so like mm -hmm. I it was so clear I would listen to each remix and I'd be like yes 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 no 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 like it was very clear to me so we had a spreadsheet and I would just copy and paste the links to the to the my favorites and of course you know, maybe there was 20 on that list at one point. And then two days later, I would listen again and then bring it back down to eight, you know, then from eight, maybe I'd have a tough time. So then that's when I brought in my team, you know, management, label, other folks to listen. But I had felt pretty confident, you know, that that there was no confusion. And then the best part was that the final eight, there was two women on the list and both of them ended up in, in our top five collectively, you know, like everyone kind of agreed. And mm -hmm. that also felt really good to have 50, 50 uh, gender split uh, on the record. Yeah. And was it, I, I can only imagine it, but was it so fun letting the winners know that they won? They loved it. They were so happy. And I think they were happy that we've actually put it out on Sony and they were happy that we put so much like love and attention into like marketing it and collaborating on the uh, cover for it, which is this like drippy gold futuristic album artwork. And I think 
in general, I've reached a point in my career where if I say yes to something, I want to say yes all the way and like fully put my love and attention in it. And if I say no, I can honor that no, because I know that I wouldn't bring the self that I'd want to bring had I said yes. Right. You know, I've been, I've been thinking about you on and off during quarantine because I feel like I'm not alone in the fact that I've kind of been trying to go on a self-improvement jag yes. while I have to be indoors. And I've been just like walking around going like, all my bad habits have got to, got to go. All my bad habits have got to, got to go. And I was, I was wondering, you know, in that song, you sing about how all your bad habits have got to got to go. And then you go on to explain that you want to be a better version of yourself so you can follow in the footsteps of all the revolutionaries who inspire you. And totes, same. I want to do that too. Are there any bad habits that you've actually given up since you wrote that song? And has that process made you actually better able to take on the world? I love this question. And I would <laughs> say the best one has been giving up coffee. I feel very Ooh. proud of that. I do because I was just like that person coming from the academic world, then coming from label world, then coming from uh, tour life. Like everything for me was like coffee, coffee, coffee. And I love coffee. I love landing in the local, you know, the, 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 the local coffee shop, finding the local coffee shops near the venue, you know, all of that kind of thing. And so in the quarantine, when everything was closed and everyone was making their own coffee, I wasn't about to go get like a $5,000 Marzocco, like <laughs> a latte machine. And, uh, and so I started switching to matcha and I'm drinking matcha now in the morning, but I definitely feel proud to have given up a coffee addiction. Pretty cold turkey. I totally gave up coffee. I would, would drink it every day just and have it on the train going to work. And then when I, we got quarantined, I just never buy milk and I like my right. coffee with cream. See? And so then that was basically the break because totally. I was like, this I'm not going to buy any creamer. powerful reset for all of us. Like, I love that example of like, okay, well, I don't really actually need milk. I'm only consuming it because it's available to me. But that's like, it is this kind of capitalist thing where... I'd like to think we are all trimming the fat. Then there's the part of me where I was like, ew, but Amazon is also like sending us shit that we don't really need. Like we're all like overly ordering online. <laughs> um, but I legit have never ordered anything on the Amazon. Dude, that's, wow. that's big. And like, I want to be that way. Like maybe that's my next bad habit that I have to give up because it's just so easy <laughs> whenever you need something like they send it the next day, you know, but you're so right. I know I'm looking for a, Bacon size Tupperware, <laughs> just the size of a bacon? bacon. No, for like a pack of bacon because like the bacon I get doesn't have a zip seal, and I need oh. to keep it in a Tupperware or it goes bad. And none of my Tupperware is bacon size, but I just keep you know when I walk into the post office or I'm going to the bank, then I go into a dollar store and yes. see if they have a bacon size Tupperware. I, I feel like that's so much better. I still have yet to find the perfect bacon size Tupperware. Though. You know where you can find that, though. I'm not going there. <laughs> <laughs> um, Karen, you brought this up earlier, and I wanted to return to it briefly. Uh, something that I read in your Bust Magazine interview that you did this past spring for us that I found so interesting 
is that this year you decided that everyone you play live music with needs to be sober before gigs and while performing, which is like definitely bucking the whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle thing. What made you decide to lay down the law like that? And do you plan to continue with that rule once performances start up again? Of course. I mean, that rule has been there forever, just informally. It was more this year. It felt more formal because my team just gets bigger and bigger. So we're bringing more people into the project. So then you kind of like take these norms that were happening anyway, and you just sort of formalize them across the project. I think honestly, the new sex, drugs and rock and roll is like, I'm vegan. I get up early. I meditate. Like I drink water. Like I'm just like, I don't drink alcohol. Like I'm high on life. Like I, like I look like I'm like, you know, like I look 10 years younger than I actually am because this is what people are supposed to look like. It's just that we all, all like doing things that are not good for us, you know? And I'm not, I'm not fully off, you know, anything. Like I I'll have an, I'll have a drink every now and then I'll have a smoke every now and then. Like it's hard for me to fully, be off things and fully commit to veganism, for example, you know, like I enjoy having cheese every now and then, especially if I'm traveling and and enjoying whatever the local thing is. But the, to me, the folks who I really do feel a deep, rich admiration for are those who have an enormous amount of discipline, uh, protecting their craft and protecting the things that allow them to show up for work in the best way possible. So I think to me, the new flex is like, you have your shit together, not that you're falling apart. This is so interesting to me because I, the, I've i been in a couple bands and one is called Drunky Brewster and the other is Faces of Weed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so like the aesthetic is being wasted mm-hmm. and it is it would be insane for me to show up <laughs> at a Faces of Weed show. So, so funny. <laughs> but I get the concept, and I get. But you're working with a team, and it would it, in my band. It's just always me and one or two other people, so it's much less complex, you know. Conversely, before I even knew that Madame Gandhi was setting this trend, when I was in the punk band Royal Pink, that I met at Willie May, um, we called ourselves um, the world's most responsible band. Because we did, ex- you were. we did exactly what what Madame Gandhi did. Like before shows, it was all saltines, club soda, and ginger ale. Because <laughs> I would get stage fright and nervous, <laughs> and then we would rock the f out. And then after the show, everyone would be like, "Hooray for Royal Pink! Let's buy them drinks!" And we would be like, "Thank you very much," but it would it would only be after and never before. Oh, my God. We did beer bongs in the show through a giant sculpted dick. Well, yeah, you did it during the show. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we smoked in set. We uh, uh, did beer bongs during set. But also my music isn't complicated. (laughs) Right. Yeah, you didn't actually play any instruments, which is different. What? Shut up. I played the keyboard. But I didn't play it the way that most people play. Right. You, like, played it with your (laughs) face. To be fair. No, I just uh, numbered it a different way. I never technically learned how to play the keyboard. I ta- taught myself. So I just had a cheat sheet for my drunk ass that said hit A, B key, 3B start, and different codes. I think there's so many levels to it. I think it's about what's, as you use the word aesthetic, that is it. Because our art is also selling and sharing and, and celebrating an identity. So whatever the identity is, as long as it's authentic, I think that's really the real 
the the core of it. That's what makes the music project work is that you're, you're living your truth. You know, you're doing something that you would be doing regardless of whether there is an audience or not. I think that's kind of mm-hmm. how I think about it. And exactly. Yeah. You know, coming off the stage for me, I'm still leading the project where I have to make sure every last wire of my tech gets packed up properly. And that, you know, I'm, I'm meeting folks and that I don't have like gross alcohol breath. Like I want to feel like I can come up to my fans and like talk to, you know, things like mm-hmm. things like that, that I, I personally feel, or, or I don't want to embarrass them. No, I really am so sensitive to this, to this conversation because it's not, it, it's not supposed to be a judgmental thing. I think the conversation more is just how do we each optimize for the best version of our own project so that we can deliver the music we want to, to our fans. And that's, that's more how I'm thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And also you have different managers for different things. I had a pyrotechnics manager and I don't think I explained to him clearly that pyrotechnics are only when I wanted them. And so my pyrotechnics manager set off a bunch of fireworks in the fucking basement of cake shop, lit my goddamn bangs on fire and the fire department had to show up and Dana, my wig manager, she just eyed the fireman and rode him around the show on his shoulders and they let us keep playing. But I had to explain to the pyrotechnics manager the next day uh, that it's not always fireworks. (laughs) You have to wait until I approve the fireworks. You can't just show up. Definitely RIP cake shop. That was a, a sweet venue. Oh, the cake shop. I love that place. Uh, my favorite, I think it's hard to pick, but I think my favorite Madame Gandhi song, um, the one that gets me the most pumped is The Future is Female. Bust, we've used the slogan, the future is female before, as and we used it, I think, similarly as an expression of our feminist ideals. But we've also experienced some pushback on that sometimes because we're in an era now of cultural development where everything surrounding gender is being questioned and redefined. And I was just curious, since you have this amazing song called The Future is Female, what are your thoughts on using terms like the future is female and imagery like the girl with the wig that's shaped like what would traditionally be referred to as the female reproductive system in your video for top knot turn up. Have you experienced similar resistance to your music's very clear celebrations of womanhood? How are you negotiating that now? I love that question. So with regards to the future is female, when I put it out in 2016, that was really a rallying cry for celebrating uh, feminine styles of leadership, for for saying, especially during a time when Hillary Clinton was running for president and we were seeing uh, uh, energy around the Women's March when Trump eventually did win the presidency, uh, there was a lot of uh, desire to celebrate what women and femmes do bring to the table, you know, things like being emotionally intelligent instead of brute force aggressive, uh, showing a desire to uh, want to collaborate instead of compete. You know, so often the world that we live in reifies um, styles of leadership that really don't necessarily work in all contexts. And I do think there is a gender analysis through which you can look at these. Now, I think I'd like to live in a post-gender world where being gentle doesn't 
connect to any one gender, that those that behavior and that quality is accessible to any person of any identity uh, because we've arrived at a place where we desire gentleness. We don't see it as a hierarchy system that places us and places, you know, being gentle or peaceful or warm or loving or caring in a subordinate position to being aggressive or apathetic or not emotionally dialed in, things like that. So for me, that that phrase was really about celebrating those traits, and I still do very much so in my work today. Now, of course, like anyone and like any person who's a responsible activist, leader, and thinker, you have to allow your ideas to, to evolve. And so do I understand why specifically using the word female is exclusive uh, to folks who are trans or, or gender nonconforming? Obviously. In fact, it's my, my sisters in the trans community who have long showed leadership that allows any of us as women or femmes to bravely step into the fullest fullness of our identity. And so this this slogan really shouldn't shouldn't ex- shouldn't exclude anyone. So now, do I use the future is feminine interchangeably with the future is female? Absolutely, and that is because uh, of, of exactly the concern you're describing. Um, but for me, I feel very clear that the future is female uh, really is about celebrating uh, feminine traits, regardless of what your gender identity is. And then, in terms of your question about you know celebrating female anatomy in my music uh, and in visually in my music video for Top Not Turn Up, where we have a barber who I play, uh, you know, making hairstyles that look like ovaries and uteruses and things like that. Um, you know, one argument is that that representation is triggering and harmful to someone who identifies as a woman, but maybe not does not have that uh, and shared anatomy. And for me, you know, I had a long conversation with with one particular friend of mine uh, in the trans community who said, listen, Kieran, like just because you show up hard for your body uh, doesn't mean you're not going to show up just as hard for my body. And I, I said, you know, that is how I feel about this situation. But more so, uh, we do need to find a way to be able to celebrate each other without um, without being exclusive. It's about solidarity. It's about solidarity. Um. I would like to ask you, Madam Gandhi, are you a feminist? Yes. <laughs> if you said no, I was going to get twisted. <laughs> that, have and, made, that might have made for a more interesting podcast. <laughs> How, we get a lot of no's, though, shockingly. I'm glad that you say that you are. And I would like to know... How has your career in music impacted your feminism or vice versa? Um, you know, I say that I'm a feminist because I was raised in the 80s and 90s where really that that, that movement of Riot Girl and of, uh, you know, reading feminist literature and studying women's studies in school, like, gave me a voice, like, gave me tools to navigate things in, that I already saw intuitively in society as problematic and felt like not enough people were talking about this. And so then when I would go into the classroom and come out with vocabulary to talk about you know, body dysmorphia or gender politics or queer theory, I would feel so empowered by, by, by those spaces because I didn't feel like I knew how to articulate the problems that I would see in the world and the sexism that I would see at at Georgetown or or in any college campus, uh, as well as I could when I come out of those classes. So that's why I say yes, because I feel there's been so much beautiful work, uh, from, from feminist leadership in the past that has allowed us to arrive where we are now. People say no because, 
a lot of that feminism, while it was so productive in many directions, it also was harmful to many people. You know, it was often seen as a white woman's movement. It was often seen as a cis woman's movement. It was often seen as a straight woman's movement. And I think like any good activist or responsible leader, as I mentioned earlier, we have to continue to evolve our ideas and vocabulary to meet the needs of the time. I believe a feminist movement at its core is an inclusive movement. In fact, a feminist movement at its core is just as much for men as it is for members of the gender nonconforming or trans community as it is for women, because it's about gender liberation. It's about saying, how do we value femininity so that we are all free? Because unless your most vulnerable genders are free in the society, nobody is free. So that's why I identify as a feminist. And I would say it's those concepts that I put in my music that, you know, I've chosen music as my career to be able to do that. Right on. 100%. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Um, you know, besides creating a whole remix album, what else has your quarantine been like? <laughs> I find it challenging to be in this quarantine. I find it like, I love people. I love travel. I love seeing new things. I love meeting new people. I love bringing my ideas to folks who, you know, in, in India or in parts of Europe or in this Latin America who don't um, often get to talk about these kinds of issues to the extent that maybe I get to talk about these issues. And so I've loved touring the past five years and I felt very sad this year to not be able to. Now, of course, there's benefits like we talked about at the start of this podcast about getting rid of our bad habits, about sitting in our trauma, you know, and identifying what like toxic patterns that I have in myself that I need to work on, whether it's in the context of a romantic relationship or in the context of just friendships and and work and music. Um, I've gotten better at, you know, being able to be a producer and, and, and my fitness has gotten better. I ran the virtual New New York marathon two weeks ago, which was so cool. Uh, but this quarantine was challenging. I love people. I love travel. I love live music. And, uh, and it's, you know, this, this quarantine has made me value it even more. I know very little about your personal life, even though I love your music so much. Are you isolating alone? Are you with people? Do you have pets? Do you have lovers? What's going on? Uh, I've been isolating alone. You know, I, I broke up with my partner. Oh my God. Right. I know. I mean, obviously my friends make so much fun of me because if they were here, they'd be like, dude, you're out and about. Like, you're not fucking by yourself 24-7. You know what I mean? So I, I, I think that's because I I think if I actually were to be here by myself, that would, that would be enormously challenging, as it was in the very top of the quarantine where things were very, very serious. Now, I, you know, I'll go to the coffee shop or I'll go to, like, I don't know, the beach, like wherever other people are. Um but yeah, I live here in downtown LA. I'm in my loft. I'm, I'm on Zoom calls like any of us are. Um, and I, I broke up with my partner at the start of this year. So at this point, almost a year ago. And I do think uh, the, the timing ended up being for the better because then this quarantine. Oh, fuck yeah. yeah. Because then, you know, with the quarantine, there's time to like heal and really go inward and really work on yourself. Um, and there's been a couple of other romances in between, but, uh, I'm definitely I've had friends it. that broke up right before quarantine and I'm like, thank God, right. because could you imagine going through a breakup no. and trying to move? Yeah. And I think the quarantine, like either it shit. makes or breaks the relationship, either it brings two people together or it shows you that it's just not supposed to happen, you know? And I also don't know how people exist without a pet. Mm. Legit, mm. hard, legit. 
if I didn't have my cat, I like it gives me so much uh, joy, like secret joy. Oh, secret know? joy. You know, like every day I just look at her and I'm like, oh, there goes my cat <laughs> being a cat. It's like a personal TV and it's the best thing. I don't know how people exist in quarantine without a cat oh, or a dog or, or uh, any opossum or whatever you awesome. want. You know, my friend Heather has a possum. She found a possum outside. It was missing a leg. It's covered in uh, maggots. She named it Maggie. They cleaned it up, and now it sleeps on the bed with her, her dog, and her cat. It just chills. That's both disgusting and adorable. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, Kieran, what are your your hopes and your dreams and your goals for 2021? What is on your vision board? Um, for me, it's putting out more music. Uh, doing shooting more visuals. I love, love, love doing music videos. I just love it. Like I love thinking about them. I love putting it together. I love working with the team. I love the collaboration and coordination of the whole thing. So definitely music and and visuals are high on my priority list. And I think it's been really fun to step more into my vulnerability in this quarantine. I think, you know, during 2016 and 17 at the height of the women's march and a lot of our like anti-45 activism. My music really lived in this kind of political feminist space, which I was really proud of because it, it really translated. But the the only things that I find myself writing about right now are like personal, like sorrow, personal improvement, vulnerability, love, connection, seeking connection, wanting connection. Like, and I, I hope that that in itself is, is, is concepted and received as an act of feminism because it's honest and it's because it's owning the vulnerability and it's owning whatever pain it is that, that I as an artist am going through that I hope uh, is relatable to folks who have shared this very treacherous year with me. <laughs> I do love that a lot of your work is like so introspective and uh, you, you basically are always like questioning yourself and challenging yourself. It seems. Yeah, I find I find it um, inspiring to do the same for myself when it, when I get pumped up listening to you, as I did all day. Now I feel like I can take on the world. That means a lot. Thank you for saying that. This is uh, my final question, and it's a question that I ask every guest on this podcast. And that question is, "What you watching?" And it is a broad pop cultural question. We want to know about. Books, movies, music, television, music videos, podcasts. If you are consuming it pop culturally, we want to know about it because it is probably very, very cool. Madam Gandhi, what you watching? I love that question. Uh, in terms of what I'm listening to, I'm listening to an artist called Saint Panther. And I think you guys should have her on your podcast. She's amazing and super inspiring. And I do think she's going to blow up. Uh, she's based here out of L.A. She's a queer, like, badass artist, producer, composer, songwriter, like, just doing amazing stuff. So St. Panther, check her out. Uh, the film that I just watched recently is called On the Record. It's the story of Drew Dixon coming out and uh, basically talking about her rape and sexual assault assault experience with uh uh, what's his name in the music industry? Very famous guy, uh, Russell Simmons. And, mm. you know, oh, yeah, that that was obviously just it was just watching how calculated so many of his uh, 
you know, assaults really were and how many women came forward and how similar their stories were and the fact that no justice has been served and that continues to happen. It just shows what a masculine society we do live in, where women's voices continue to be quieted, especially when men have access to power and privilege, and also when men have contributed value to society that other people love and admire. And then compounded by all of that, of course, is is race. And when you are a Black woman, is your allegiance to uh, like a Black man who's experienced plenty of trauma himself, but then is still committing these sexual assault uh, cases? Or is your allegiance to other women? And and what does that look and feel like? And and I, I, I really think that that film is a must watch for everybody. And then uh, I love it. Was there a third medium? Yeah, books. Um, I, Andrew, Anderson Horowitz, actually, you know, serial tech entrepreneur, just put out another another book uh, that I'm reading about how to biz, how to build your your business culture around your personality and how you know you are your business. And I find things like that to be enormously valuable because usually they're never teaching that in the context of the music industry. And so I love reading things that are for small startups, um, but then applying it to the music industry. Right on. That's why you're such a boss. And I, I'm sure the MBA from Harvard helps too. <laughs> it's funny though because I like read a lot of this stuff and I'm like, you guys are such douches. Like I do actually feel that. But then, you know, the truth is like we have so much white male leadership and, there, they, and there's many folks who are just doing extraordinary things. And so then it is important to kind of learn and take the things that we think are good and responsible and healthy aspects of business and then, and then redesign that to work for us. Yeah. Well, those are my questions. It has been such a delight speaking with you. I've admired your music for such a long time, and I'm so glad that I got a chance to tell it right to you. This means so much. Thank you both uh, for this opportunity. Thank you, both of you as well. Thank you for holding space. I am going to take the briefest of breaks, and when we come back, I'm going to ask Callie, and Callie's going to ask me, what you watching? Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes. And tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious. And I knew would make great podcasts. And every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. (laughs) Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have dockets. We docket. all have a docket. Sex. Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> Scams. I'm Caitlin Bradley Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German Russian heiress and she seems like she has a lot of money and people buy it. 
That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. Which Amazing. Was so smart. I mean, so like, smart. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. And we're back. We just talked to Madam Gandhi. What what an intensely intelligent person she is, right? I know. She's amazing. Epic. Epic. She's epic. And now, Callie, I want to know, I've got to know, I need to know, what you watching? Ooh, well, as usual, I got a little horror up in here. You know how I do. Um, Mm -hmm. I was watching this a uh, British co- horror comedy called Zomboat. <laughs> so just take that in. And it's like, mm-hmm. a, so, you know, a zombie uh, outbreak is happening in, um, in this town in, in um, England. And these two sisters steal, one of them is like a gamer and the other one is like a party girl. And they, they steal the party girl's ex-boyfriend's houseboat. And then there's like two two random dudes ended up stowing away in the boat. And so they're all on this like low speed zombie chase on a canal. And it is hilarious. It's, you know, British comedy is either hilarious or I just don't get it. This one was so fucking funny. I loved it. Oh, good. Zomboat. I've never heard of it. Then, um... Uh, still in the horror, I watched Treehouse, you know, the Into the Dark series on Hulu? Yes. Uh-huh. They, like, put out a new uh, episode movie, like, once a month. And this one was pegged to, like, the Me Too movement. And it's about the celebrity chef who was getting Me Tooed, and so he went to hide from the backlash at his family's old house where he grew up. And there's some girls next door having a bachelorette party and their power goes out and he invites them over for dinner and he's just, you know, a general shit person. So you see, he's going to get some shit coming his way. Well, these ladies turn out to be quote unquote witches and Mm. they mind fuck the fuck out of this guy. It was, it, it, it was, it was hilarious. And the revenge was sweet, and it was all serious mind fuck. And uh, let's the, the dude definitely got the message by the end of it. Hilarious. And it was called Treehouse. Treehouse. It was <laughs> really, really good. Then keeping up with revenge, <laughs> revenge, a vigilante starring Olivia Wilde on Amazon. Mm. So she's a domestic abuse survivor who's husband was like a um a survivalist you know and like they would go like off the grid and live in the woods and stuff and he was super abusive and um she's hunting him in the woods and while this is like a long process because he knows how to hide you know and it's a lot of woods while she's doing that she is going um she just is in these like domestic abuse groups and then like 
word of mouth travels that she will fuck your abuser up. And so she just like has all these disguises and like goes on undercover, shows up the house, beats the shit out of the dude. She's like MMA training. She's like fucks the dude up so bad. Like, you, you know, you'll like cut scene wow. and he's just like a lump of like, like mush face, like might as Ugh. well be a zombie apocalypse. And then she's like, you're leaving you're, or she's leaving whatever the woman wants. And, you know, we're like, you have to give the money and get out of here. I don't care where you go. And then of course the dudes always give in. And she's like, and if you fuck with her again, believe me, I will find you. <laughs> and you don't fuck with her twice. It was revenge. So sweet. It was like, uh, every time you're like, Oh man, this guy deserves that. <laughs> It's very satisfying. Wow, that sounds brutal. It was brutal, but in like a very, just like Treehouse, you're like, fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Retribution. <laughs> and then last, I've been watching The Wilds on Amazon. I just started that um, last night and we tore through a lot of them. I've not done yet, but it is like my so-called life meets Survivor. Oh, yeah. So a group of teen girls were going on like a, a women's only retreat, like, um, you know, one of those ladies retreats. And it's like uh, the plane there and crashed. And then it's like, I guess, seven of them or something like that. And they're all stranded on this island. And so uh, the one girl in the first episode is so Angela, my so-called life, like existential thinking and just like dramatics and then um you know it's just like teens there's all these twists you know like sort of like lost where you're like mm -hmm. oh this is, was not a coincidental accident Smoke monster <laughs> yeah, i don't think it's gonna go as crazy as lost like polar bear but so far it's really really good and pretty funny and like there was this one part where this one girl dies and she was a big fan of pink and they don't know much about her so they're like burying her and doing a beach funeral and then they just start singing pink songs like <laughs> very like serious so the show is really good it's it's the talk of the town on the internet right now and i am loving it great i've and not is, seen any of those things oh they're all all hits given the hits and what are you watching rems you know i've been going in the Wayback machine that's the short version <laughs> uh one thing that is exciting is that, you know, I have, I do all of my watching on Roku and there's all these like weird channel apps that like, um, if you're into doing a deep dive, you can just find all kinds of random things on them. And there's this one app on Roku called Tubi, T-U-B-I, oh, yes. and they have episodes of Showtime at the Apollo from the 80s on there. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I got totally sucked into something that was like circa 1988, I would say, based on the hair stories that I was seeing. And it was um <laughs> it was amateur night where they have like a competition and they have like like five it was like a variety show and five totally unknown people come up and then like you know the audience you know like their judgment is swift and severe in real time while the person is performing there was this poor little kid he was like literally maybe 12 at the most and he was rapping his little heart out and everyone in the in the audience was like boo 
You suck, boo. Did he and suck? then there were No, you know, like I you know how like in the eighties, like maybe not everyone was enjoying rap so right. much. You, it was just um, beginning. That kid's probably yeah. probably a big thing now. <laughs> He's probably a mogul now, but yeah, that poor little kid, he was, you know, his flow wasn't the freshest, but he was giving it his all and everyone was like, boo. And then there was like a lady doing like her slow jams and people were like, Oh yeah. And like, then this other lady came on and she was obviously like the star of her church choir. She was fully decked out in Laura Ashley. She was singing some like a standard of something and she was really taking it to church and people just started praise dancing in the front row. I love it. I love that show so much. There's just, and it really made me, um, very, you know, it made me long for audience participatory environments, live performance, and just like all that crazy stuff that happens. Also, it just made me remember um, great times that I've had at the Apollo Theater. I saw Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings at Ooh. the Apollo. I've seen great shows there, and I'm like, would love to see shows there again someday when we are allowed to gather. Anyway, I enjoyed it very much. I I used to watch Showtime at the Apollo after Saturday Night Live, before Soul Train, back in the day. And I was having all kinds of retro feels. And then some, this is a treasure. The next thing that I've been watching is actually something that I've been listening to. And I fell down a deep chasm and then never returned. The second thing that I've been watching is actually something that I've been listening to. And it's actually because of our producer, Luscious Logan. He was listening to a whole bunch of Alice Coltrane on YouTube. And I never listened to Alice Coltrane before. Have you? It's, I know the name, but I don't think I could point it out. So like, I'm, I feel like most people are familiar with the very famous jazz saxophonist, John Coltrane, who is a jazz legend. I did not know that his wife, Alice Coltrane, was like a titan of freeform jazz in her own right. And like way, and her, her compositions go way beyond jazz. Like she started out before she even met John Coltrane, like in the, in the fifties, she was born in Detroit, and in the 50s, she went to study jazz and classical music in Paris. She was playing at the Blue Note in Paris before she ever met John Coltrane. Like, she met him, like, after she had already appeared on French TV. Like, she she came, what, came, she was an expat. She came back to Detroit after she had a daughter. She was already playing jazz professionally, and that's how she met John Coltrane, and they got together. And um, they were married in 1965. And then he died, I want to say in like 1967 or something. Like not that long. They were, they were, yeah, he died in 1967. They were married in 1965. So they had this short, but very fertile collaborative um, relationship where she played in his band. She was a multi-instrumentalist. She played the harp. She was one of the very, she was one of the only jazz musicians ever to play the harp. She was a jazz band leader of her own band. And she went on, you know, after John Coltrane's death to make 13 albums. And after he died, she was like deeply in mourning and went on this 
spiritual journey to India and she became a Swami. Whoa. And she, yeah. And she changed her name to something very difficult to pronounce. She changed her name from Alice Coltrane to Turi Yasangitananda. And she made all of this like spiritual visionary music. She, she lived until 2007. She was making music basically the whole time. And she put out like really trippy, amazing music that, you know, like was sort of inspired by hallucinations and also by like deep spiritual states. She like abandoned her whole secular life in this, in the early seventies and she had her own ashram in California. Um, but yeah, she, her music is really mind expanding and I love it. And I had, I felt deep shame that as a feminist, I had of course heard of her husband, had never heard of her and her vast and deep career. And I just want to listen to Alice Coltrane all the time now. And I think that she would make a great history feature for the magazine. I'm going to bring it up next time we have a meeting. I was just thinking that. (sighs) Yeah, she's so cool. Anyway. So like I got into this like weird trippy Alice Coltrane headspace and then I don't know if you've ever done this. I feel like I had like an unsuccessful attempt at it once, but you know that whole thing where if you play Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon and you watch Wizard of Oz at the same time, it all like matches up. Oh yeah, I got stalked because of that. What do you mean you got stalked? <laughs> Back when you know when I had that college stalker who would write us the letters and he had multiple personalities and they all ended in when we love you. I must've told you this crazy ass story. He stalked me and Dana at the same time, but it happened because he would come into my coffee shop and I would, was trying to teach him how to read just like we'd do flashcards and stuff. He was nice at the beginning. And then, you know, we would say hi to him on the way to school and shit like that. And then um, one of my friends started hooking him up with weed and then he thought that we were like homie homies. And when he found out we were all going to see the dark side of the moon um, and the the music on, um, what do they call that when they play them together? Oh, um, dark side, side of, of Oz. Oz. Yeah. So it was like playing at the bird uh, midnight movie. The bird is like this super old, awesome theater in uh, Richmond. And he got really mad about that, that we didn't take him to see this movie. And I was like, you are schizophrenic. I don't think you need to be no shade on schizophrenic people, but I don't really think this was the mind place for him to be. Right. (laughs) You know, it's pretty trippy and shit. And um, also we're not homies. And then he just started leaving all these crazy ass notes on our door all the time. And they would be different handwriting and different personalities. And uh, some of them were really fucking scary. We had to get a restraining order that did not work. Wow. I had to call my dad dad fixed it thanks dad dad won't won't tell me what he did but dad showed up drove all the way from northern virginia to richmond in the middle of the night on a work night went to the dude's house came back over and was like i can see why you were helping him weed he's a nice guy callie seems very nice he will not bother you again (laughs) (laughs) i saw him in the 7-eleven parking lot and he fucking sprinted old man sprinted away from me way to go dad anyway that's that's my story about the dark side of us 
Yeah, I I think that I tried to do it once like in high school and I couldn't get it to match up correctly. If you want to do it at home the old-fashioned way, you hit your CD player the third time the MGM lion roars before The Wizard of Oz. But if you want to make it easy on yourself, if you go to YouTube, you just look up Dark Side of Oz and it's perfectly perfectly synchronized. Yes. I loved it. I I if I had seen it before, it was so long ago that I felt like I was watching it for the first time. And I liked it. And I do not like Pink Floyd. I am not a fan, but I did enjoy it in tandem with The Wizard of Oz. I'll get down with some Pink Floyd. <laughs> I'll get down. <laughs> and then, uh, of course, the last thing I've been watching is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page, which makes a great gift, I should say, by the way, for yourself or for someone else. Um, we really need your help out there within the sound of my voice to help keep Bust alive. Bust is a great feminist institution, and we're, we've fallen upon hard times, as have all small businesses across this great land. And we are doing our very best to raise money to keep Bust alive. And part of how we're doing that is through the Bust Pop-Tarts Patreon page. You can find it at patreon.com slash Podcast, And over there, you'll see that Callie and I have been typing up show notes exclusively for donors that include links to what everyone has been watching for the entire history of the show. Um, it's almost three years now, and that's a lot of a lot of things that a lot of people have been watching. We also have on there totally ad-free episodes that are available. We have exclusive content, including our episode with Big Frida that you can only hear on the Pop-Tarts Patreon page. We sent out gift packages. We have had Zoom chats. We send out personal thank you notes. We have so many gifts and incentives and reasons for you to give us money. Um, and I hope that you will check them all out at patreon.com slash Podcast. All the money goes to help keep Bust alive, to help keep feminist media alive. And we hope that you will check it out. Finally, Callie, I would like to give a big thank you to our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. <laughs> Muy caliente, Logan. And also, of course, our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily, but you cannot find Callie on social media, so don't try. You can email both of us. I'm at Emily Rems at bus.com. Callie W at bus.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps us get the word out, and we super-duper appreciate it. Until next time. Mwah! We should record naked. We should record naked. We should record naked. We should record naked. We should record naked.